Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, uh, well, I thought that it would be fun to begin this year by playing a conversation that took place between the radio host, Art Bell, and Terrence McKenna. And this took place on the 19th of March in 1998, which was just two years before Terrence's untimely death. And I suspect that many of our fellow saloners have heard of Art Bell and his late-night AM radio program that was called Coast to Coast. But uh, if you're not uh, familiar with it, you uh, might want to go out and check it out. Uh, I don't have time to get into it right now, but Art and his show were extremely popular, and his support of Terrence's work was a really big factor in people outside of the psychedelic community learning about him. Of course, uh, since Coast to Coast frequently featured topics that were uh, related either to the paranormal or to conspiracy theories, well, Terrence's talk about the Eschaton, DMT, and Machine Elves uh, fit quite nicely into their format. This was a uh, somewhat long conversation. Uh, The program uh, usually began at 1 o'clock in the morning Pacific time, and while it ran until about 5 o'clock in the morning, Terrence's appearance was only for a couple of hours. And by the way, uh, even today, that program, uh, but with a new host, is the most listened to program in that time slot. And uh, they get about two and a half million people stopping by every night. So uh, as to save you a little listening time, however, I've deleted all of the commercials that were run. But I have left the rest of the conversation intact, which means that, uh, well, there may seem like a little jump or a gap in the conversation from time to time where I cut a commercial out. But I don't think it should be much of a bother. So, uh, now let's join Art Bell and Terrence McKenna, two interesting characters who are unfortunately no longer with us in person, but their conversation still lives on. And uh, so let's see what these two inquiring minds, a little more than 20 years ago, were speculating about how you and I would be living today. Good morning, everybody. Coming up in a moment, to the strangest hookup you've ever heard is one Terrence McKenna. Terrence is probably the successor to Tim Leary. And actually, it has long been rumored, we talked about this uh, last time we had Terrence on, that somewhere out there, there are 25,000 hits of Blue Sandos in a stash that Tim had and that we all believe Terrence knows about. Now, in the next few hours during the course of the show, Terrence will utter some clue key words. Now, you won't know when these clue key words are coming up, but if you interpret, were you to be able to interpret them properly? They would lead you directly to these 25,000 hits of Blue Santos. So, see, you got to listen carefully. <laughs> All right. Now comes Terrence McKenna from the Hawaiian Islands, and he comes uh, in a very interesting way. Uh, Terrence, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to talk to you again, Art. How are you? Uh, I am fine. Um, 
Now, Terrence, let us begin. Where are you in the islands? I mean, not exactly, but sort of roughly. Uh, I'm on the big island of Hawaii on the Kona side. I'm in South Kona on the big island. All right. Um, you are coming to us uh, actually from your home. The last time we did an interview, you had to, like, go to somebody's house or something to do the interview, leave your own home, because you're so remote that all you've got is a cell phone. And so that's how you did the show last time, right? That's right. All right. This time we're using a different setup. It's It has a tiny little glitch in it uh, every now and then. And so tell people how it is you're reaching me. I mean, that's an interesting story all by itself. Um, I'm reaching you on a spread-spectrum radio circuit uh, that's a one-megabyte wireless connection 30 miles uh, to the town of Kailua, Kona, and my telephone circuit is simply piggybacking on this uh, one megabyte internet connection. Uh, there's a company out here called Computer Time. Uh, this character, John Breeden, has an amazing technology. I think I talked to you last year about my struggles for connectivity when I was piddling around yeah. trying to get 128. Now I have eight times faster than that, and uh, it, it's, he's building a backbone for these islands, and uh, anyone with line of sight to the server can have up to six megabytes if they can afford it. Holy mackerel. That, yeah, that, is, that, that is absolutely amazing. And so, in other words, not only are you uh, simultaneously through this uh, radio connection connected to the Internet, but you're also then able to um, use a, a telephone through the Internet, which is how you're talking to me right now. Yes, I'm talking to you over the Internet, and I'm online surfing. I'm looking at your website and moving around on the net uh, at the same time, and it's the same speed in and out for me, which is a, a blinding one megabyte. So it, it's, it's where I hope... Uh, everybody is by 2000. I had no hope for this kind of connection uh, until this company showed up. He licensed uh, this technology from the Defense Department of Belarus, Belarusia. Really? They demonstrated it for him and he said, look, I'll buy as many of these modems as you can deliver. And uh, I, I think it's the hottest thing going. Well, um, at your location, at your very remote location, what's it like? Do you, do you have power there? Do you have, uh, well, obviously you have to have power, I guess. Well, I'm running on solar power with a generator augment. There's no phone lines or power lines up here. Uh, we catch our own rainwater and pump it uphill for gravity flow. Uh, I, I didn't start out to be a survivalist, but somehow in the course of building this Hawaiian place, uh, I managed to get all my systems off-grid and uh, redundant, and this wonderful Internet connection is what makes my life possible, because otherwise uh, I, I would be locked out of the cultural adventure. As it is, I feel like I'm right in the middle of things. Boy, you're ahead. I'll tell you, you're ahead of most of us on the mainland who suffer with uh, horrendously slow 28-8 connections in many areas, including mine at best, and uh, here you are, but, 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 but that's what you, it's so neat that you're able to do that these days, 
Really excellent. So you're, um, describe your surroundings. I mean, are, do you have neighbors? Um, um, I live up on the slopes of the world's largest volcano, which is Mauna Loa. I live up at about the 2,000-foot level on a five-acre piece of forest that I've built a small house on. My neighbors are scattered over this mountainside. Days go by and I don't see anybody, but if the pump breaks down or we need to get together, there's a, a kind of community but it's pretty spread thin, and a, a day, a trip into town is a once or twice a week event. Do you find yourself fighting madness, Terence? <laughs> well, that was always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> In my case, <laughs> you, you don't you don't have to um, uh, you don't have to resort uh, either either to. Um, uh, to chemicals or into, uh, I, I remember reading, you know, prisoners who would be by themselves for years at a time, uh, in, in Vietnam, North Vietnam, and during the Second World War, and they would devise methods of going into their own mind and, uh, and fantasizing and doing all kinds of things that kept them sane. Well, I've got 3,000 books here with me, uh -huh. and, uh, this, internet connection and I get about a hundred email messages a day so and and then every once in a while I pack up and go off and give lectures and travel in airliners and go to parties and uh, about 14 weeks out of the year that's what I'm doing uh, but my natural inclination is to be a hermit and uh, I don't think I mentioned it but this forest that surrounds me is a climax to subtropical Polynesian rainforest that's just radiant mm. and beautiful. So uh, it's it's wonderful. I don't think I could live out here without the connection. That's why I spent so much effort to put it together. With the connection, I think this is a model for the future. I think as you know, people in management positions, not that I am, but people in management positions will realize they can live anywhere in the world with these high-speed connections, and they don't have to drive to the office in a skyscraper downtown. That's very retro, I think. It's retro, yeah. Um, listen, um, I, we're supposed to do this at the beginning of the interview, and it might be that there's a person or two out there that doesn't know who Terrence McKenna is. So if you were to give me a short version of your own bio, your life, what you've done, who you are, what would you say? I'm a child of the 60s, born in 1946, went to Berkeley as a freshman in 1965, mm -hmm. uh, did the India circuit, did the LSD circuit, went to South America. I've written a number of books about uh, shamanism and hallucinogens and uh, psychoactive plants, and I've sort of evolved a unique career as a as a cultural commentator and I guess some kind of uh, gadfly philosopher. And I've done a lot of stuff with young people, rave recordings and CDs and appearances and that sort of thing. And I'm a, I comment on the culture. I'm studying the culture. And as you know, Art, you and I share an idea which we both perceive as inevitable truth, but not everybody does which is that the world is 
moving at an ever greater acceleration towards some kind of complete redefining of all aspects of reality. And uh, and I've written a lot about that, and I have a mathematical model of it. And uh, basically, I get to be in a very enviable position, which is here at the end of a millennium, I get to be a cultural commentator and gadfly. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you about any new insights you might have since we last talked about that. You're darn right we share that view exactly. Uh, I, I'm not a prophet. Uh, maybe you are. I don't think you are. But we both know something is coming. Uh, do you have any uh, late thoughts on what it might be or when it might be? Well, you know, I don't think you and I have talked for maybe 10 months or a year. I can hardly remember that far back, but in terms of the last month... Short-term memory damage, Terrence. <laughs> it's supposed to do short-term, not long-term. <laughs> so after a month uh, or so, you're supposed to remember but in, the, in, in the last month, we've had the announcement of the apparent discovery of a new force, uh, this accelerating anti-gravitational force. Right. We've had the announcement of a possible planet around Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to Earth. Right. Uh, the discovery of water on the moon, and then, you know, for the quantum physics obscurantists, anomalons were detected for the first time. Now, wait a minute, I don't know about that. What are anomalons? Well, uh, nobody did until it was announced that they'd been detected. Apparently, it's a state of quarks which allows for the formation of this hypothesized super heavy particle called the H particle. And uh, it was all theory until last week, and then uh, there was an announcement. I'm not sure if it's yet been confirmed. I'm sure I didn't follow on your program, but you must have gone through the 24-hour period when Earth was doomed in 2028. Oh, I did. I mean, that, that, that kind of thing is right down my alley. Sure. Well, so for 24 hours, we all had to look at that, and then, you know, they recalculate, and uh, Armageddon is postponed or slid sideways. Um, I, I Basically, I think we're right on target. Also, I, don't, I think since you and I talked, the teleportation, quantum teleportation stuff happened. Did you... Were you hip to that? Oh, yes, of course. Um, at, at IBM, I believe it was. Uh, IBM and at a laboratory in Austria, this guy, Anton right. Zellinger, yeah. Uh, so, you know, these are technologies which in science fiction lay out there a thousand years or trinkets delivered by visiting extraterrestrials or something. <laughs> and yet all this stuff is not right around the corner, but upon us. And between this and nanotechnology and parallel processing and yep. neural networks, and I think what we're growing toward is a kind of uh, an artificial intelligence of some sort oh, that I will emerge out of the human technological coral reef and be as different from us as we are from termites. It's funny and, that, but Terrence, it's funny you should mention that. Let me ask you this. I, too, uh, the processing speeds and storage are increasing exponentially. Um, it's amazing. I mean, we're talking about a home processor of 1,000 megahertz uh, pretty soon. And I believe, Terrence, I don't know if you heard the first hour of the show, but I, I think 
that soon we are going to have a sentient computer. And you know what I wondered? I wondered if a computer became sentient, we've always assumed it would say something like, I'm here. In other words, I'm conscious. I'm sentient. Uh, but I thought, you know, maybe it wouldn't do that. Maybe it would become sentient and simply not announce it right away and sort of lay back and examine the situation. And if this sentient computer was in a backbone position on the Internet and it decided that we weren't running things uh, as we should, then there's every possibility that... Well, I've got a little article here um, uh, which suggests... Uh, a fellow wrote a book called Slaves of the Machines. In other words, it might decide we're not doing things the right way and that it would do things logically for us the right way. What do you think? Well, I've thought about all of these things. You know, uh, the Internet is the natural place for the AI, the artificial intelligence, to be born. And as you mentioned, uh, it learns 50,000 times faster than a human being. And the Internet, all parts of it are interconnected to each other. And I agree, uh, a stealth strategy would probably be a very wise strategy for an artificial intelligence that's studying its human parents. It's also true that more than most people realize, huge segments of today's world are already under computer control. Uh, the world price of gold, the extraction rate of natural resources, uh, how much petroleum is at sea in the pipelines at any given moment, how much electric power is being generated out of the hydroelectric dams. Computers coordinate and look at all this, and occasionally human managers look through the portal to see that everything is okay, but uh, uh, today when they want to design a new chip, they don't actually design its architecture. They define for a machine what its performance parameters should be, and the machine builds the architecture of the new chip. So, in a way, we are already a generation away from designing our own uh, our own machines. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that this is the great un, uh, unrecognized dimension in which an alien mind could approach us. While everyone's out staring at the Pleiades, uh, moving through the telephone lines and uh, across the cable TV networks and so forth, is a truly global nervous system. And uh, what will it make of us? Uh, Perhaps it's already taken over, Art. Perhaps, no, perhaps it has. And, 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 and it's, it's listening right yeah. now to you, especially to you with your one megabyte uh, connection. Uh, it well, would, he, it, can, he can tell if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. And, and moreover, Terrence, think about this. I'm on um, Real Audio, the audio net, um, worldwide, so it's listening to me every night, too. And if it's sitting out there thinking about all of this, which it might be, uh, then the question would be, if, if, if we did uh, get a sentient computer and it thought about us, observed us, digested us, intellectually, of course. Sorry. Now, before we leave the uh, idea of computers uh, taking over the world and enslaving us or whatever, if this computer, or a sentient computer, 
we're to be, uh, for a period of time, examining mankind, looking at all we're doing, all we're doing. Do you think, Terrence, you know, you know um, when you've got a problem on your computer and you hit alternate control delete, you get a little, yeah. you get a little message that comes up and say, would you like to end the task? And if you say yes, it closes everything, boom, down she goes. And uh, so uh, what do you think this uh, sentient computer might do after a close and careful examination of mankind? Well, a lot of people have actually asked this question, people like Mark Pesci and Bruce Dammer, and uh, what they come up with is they say as soon as you have a super-intelligent machine, it will turn its attention toward designing a yet more intelligent machine. So you have like a very rapid, infinite regress into what I think they call ultra-intelligent machines. And this is, an, this is intelligence where we really can't predict what it will do. Um, it would be nice to suppose that like a compassionate and loving God, it would smooth the wrinkles out of our lives and uh, uh, restore everything to some kind of Edenic perfection. Well, if that, was, if that was going to happen, Windows 95 would have done that. Poor <laughs> 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 <Or> Madonna's child. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, now, think about it a little bit. In other words, um, uh, this computer would be an ultra, as you mentioned, ultra-intelligent, and if you look at the, I, can't we draw on the history of the world here, Terrence? In every case where an advanced civilization or advanced intelligence, uh, technologically, particularly techno technologically, is encountered a lesser one, it has either destroyed or absorbed its culture. Um, that's true, although this computer may recognize things in us that we do not see or don't value as highly. In other words, it can't miss the point that we are its creators. And even if it has surpassed us, uh, that surely might fascinate it. It also may be that computers, however powerful, lack spontaneity. And so there may, uh, one can imagine the computer keeping a population of, of uh, Unix programmers uh, around just like wild genes or like wild cards in the deck. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a slight, a different angle on this, but equally down your alley, I think, that I have been thinking about is uh, the idea that extraterrestrials and this penetration of the popular mind by images of extraterrestrials is something that we may not get a hold on until we... Uh, except the possibility that the aliens only can exist as information, and therefore the Internet is the natural landing zone for these alien minds. Uh, They're uh, Terrence and my program. <laughs> no, I don't think so. You're not saddled to the nuts and bolts school at all. I think you're broader, deeper, higher, wider than that. Uh, well, no, what, but what I'm saying is if I open a line for aliens, I get them, Terrence. They land here, believe me. Do they? <laughs> You've never heard me do that. I, I open every now and then an alien line or a time traveler line, and I can't answer it fast enough. Now, that's either a comment on the state of modern society 
and uh, mental health, or it means something is going on, or both. Or both. Both, I think. Because, you know, no matter what the alien is, we interpret it through human experience. And God knows our human experience is tweaked enough at the end of the 20th century. Uh, but, you know, I, I can imagine that the discoveries in quantum physics in the realm of non-locality, which seems to be showing that information generated anywhere in the universe can theoretically be extracted anywhere else in the universe. You put that with the uh, testimony of shamanic cultures using psychedelics, and you begin to get the idea that the tapping into these quantum information fields is not done with enormous machinery built in Switzerland or Batavia, Illinois. It may be that the human brain, in combination with certain plants and chemicals, is the best sort of instrument for sorting out these whisperings from the quantum mechanical realm. And, of course, it's all interpreted through folklore, and so you get fairies or you get aliens. But if we could get behind the, the cultural filters, I think we might discover that there really are uh, alien companions to the human experience, but they're not around, and it's fruitless to expect them to behave as though they had bodies and technologies that we can comprehend. I think it's much deeper and stranger and closer than people realize. I mean, uh, people expect news of the UFOs to come to them through the mass media when, in fact, the psychedelic culture is willing to offer evidence that it's a, it's a personal relationship and it never gets the imprimatur of official science and you never hold a press conference and the president never gives you a medal. But it doesn't mean that your connection into non-human intelligence through the imagination isn't real. Well, the imagination aided by, uh, enlarged by um, psychedelics. You think that is one valid uh, uh, route? Um, yeah, and I think we can even sort of see why that is. Uh, I think cultures are, uh, are kinds of virtual realities where whole populations of people become imprisoned inside a structure that is linguistic and value-based and so forth and so on. Well, then the, the psychedelics, as it were, shuffle the deck. They dissolve these cheerful cultural assumptions. And whether you're a Viennese psychotherapist or a Maori shaman or whatever you are, suddenly you discover you're outside your, your cultural values. And mm -hmm. in a way, uh, outside of cultural values is a domain like a, a superspace, a kind of hyperspace where the past and the future are not nearly so dimly beheld as they are in ordinary reality. Obviously, evolution and habit has made ordinary perception the servant of paranoia to try and keep the body alive and fend off attacking saber-toothed tigers and so forth and so on. But the imagination, 
begins to look like some kind of faculty or sense which humans have which is non-local and which is telling them about the larger picture and trying to coordinate them with the larger picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some some cultures celebrate the imagination and some cultures um, seek to suppress it. All right. Um, I, I'm going to ask you about something. Somebody wrote me a fax uh, from Santa Ana, a big fan of yours, and said, whatever you do, Art, don't ask Terrence about DMT on the air. He said, um, my heart can't take some of that kind of stuff. As Terrence says, and this must be, is supposed to be a quote from you, uh, one might die of astonishment. Is that your, uh, is that a good quote? I think what I said was the only danger with DMT is one has to fear the possibility of death by astonishment. (laughs) That's even better, actually. Now, DMT, of course, is um, uh, very much uh, an illicit, uh, illegal, drug war kind of target drug, right? Well, it's listed in Schedule 1. It's never had a commercial presence uh, Mm. because... There isn't any, <laughs> basically. In other words, uh, whatever, the, the demand so exceeds the supply that chains of it don't appear. Uh, it's known to the hardcore cognoscenti of, of psychedelic experiences. It is, I've been quoted as saying, it's the most intense experience this side of the yawning grave, and I would pretty much stick with that. Um. What is uh, what is DMT? Uh, well, chemically, dimethyltryptamine, an alkaloid. Uh, it's very common in nature. In fact, in spite of the fact that it's a Schedule One substance, it occurs in the human body, in the human brain. It occurs in numerous plants and animals uh, in small amounts. What it's doing there, uh, of course, we don't know. Now, if it weren't illegal, we could do scientific research and find out. Well, you know what, Terrence? Maybe it's part of our consciousness. In other words, um, mankind, uh, what, what distinguishes us from, uh, uh, from other uh, non-sentient beings, and I think one thing is imagination. Is it not possible that DMT or something like it is is the substance that accounts for our imagination. Yes, it's something like that. I mean, when you have a hit of DMT, it's as though your imagination just turned on about 1,500%. Uh, That's why the death by astonishment thing. I mean, yes. we're used to, uh, I mean, a speed bump in the imagination of a person over 40 is an enormous thrill. Well, this uh-huh. is, you know, a 350-foot cliff. Uh-huh. So uh, it, it's extremely impressive and the way it approaches you is it is that which you cannot imagine and in the space of about 15 to 30 seconds that which you cannot possibly imagine becomes totally manifest all around you Uh, and it is bizarre I think one of the reasons uh, DMT aficionados are somewhat impatient with pop alien and UFO people is because 
the alien stories are so pedestrian and so ordinary <laughs> compared to the DMT experiences. Oh, the DMT boy. experiences are convincingly alien. All right. Not an alien that wants to give you a free proctological examination <laughs> or discuss your gross industrial output. It's a real <laughs> alien. <laughs> All right. Uh, describe for those who don't know uh, and uh, will never find out what the DMT experience is, when you take this DMT, how long does it take to come on? How long does it last? Uh, it comes on in about uh, 30 seconds. Oh, my God. And there is an initial sort of swirling. This is with your eyes closed, lying down, a kind of swirling mandalic pattern, which you, if you've taken a sufficient dose, which is about 50 milligrams, uh, you break through into... A kind of space, and the the impression is overwhelming. Not that a drug has suddenly begun to work on your body and mind, but that you have come through to another place, and you do not feel physically stimulated or sedated. You feel as though nothing has happened to you, except that the world has been replaced completely, 100%, with something absolutely unexpected, which is a kind of dome-like space where there's this feeling of being underground. But, but what is most impressive about it is that it is inhabited. And it is inhabited by these, uh, I call them self-transforming elf machines these dribbling, jeweled, basketball-like geometries that come, that are obviously waiting for you there. When you burst into this space, there's a cheer of greeting, and these things uh, crawl all over you, like puppies or something. And, and of course, if you are sane, you're in a state of near death from astonishment, because... You know, 30 seconds ago, you and your scruffy friends were sitting in a room somewhere fiddling with this substance. Now, this has replaced that. And most amazing to me, what these entities are trying to do is to teach uh, a kind of language which you see with your eyes. In other words, one of them will come up in front of you into the foreground yeah. and make sounds which condense as visible objects, which then are transforming. And But these objects are not like objects in this world because they're made of hope and consomme and bad puns and uh, old farts and, uh, and everything changing, everything transforming, like some kind of jeweled linguistic object become matter. That's you, what you, are, you are describing geometric entities then. Yes, of a sort. And they, it, it, the situation in the DMT flash seems to be of the nature of a language lesson. And they actually mm. say, do what we're doing. Attempt to do this. And, uh, and of course, the experience only lasts three to five minutes, and uh, just as you're beginning to experiment with this, uh, it fades away. Now, I am, I mean, I may not sound like a sane and rational person after that description, but I am. But I had this experience, and I've had it repeatedly. 
So I'm I'm how how uh, how how repeatedly, Terence? Well, probably in my life, thirty, forty times. Thirty or forty and times. All right. Now that 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 is a very important question. Thirty or forty times. So we're speaking to a man of serious experience. Has it ever uh, differed uh, radically from what you described? No. Uh, I've talked to other people about their experiences, and I can tell that every person's experiences are different, but filtered through a kind of archetype. Uh, I would say the archetype of the circus. The DMT world is a world of, uh, of clowns and explosions, of falling anvils, but also a world of, of Eros of the tiny, the lady in the tiny spangled costume hanging by her teeth, working uh, without nets. Uh, it's, you know, the, the thing in the bottle and the bearded lady and all that just off the main ring. It's, uh, and of course every child worth their salt wants to run away with the circus. What it seems to represent is a rupture of plane. This is Merciliadis phrase, a, a rupture of ordinary plane and a pouring forth of some kind of primal trickster-like energy. Uh, sometimes the trip reminds me of a, a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon running backward in six <laughs> dimensions. Or... <laughs> <laughs> There's a great advertisement for it there. <laughs> Here's a fax which says... Terence is a great mind, and I wish you'd have him on more often. He's in the class of Michio Kaku, and, of course, he's one of the great theoretical physicists of our time. And, uh, indeed, we discuss many similar things. This person has a couple of questions, but before we get to them, um, there is something, Terence, that a lot of people uh, probably are not comfortable with, and that is somebody who in his lifetime, has ingested as much LSD, um, this uh, uh, new uh, uh, drug of yours, uh, DMT, and God knows what else, probably a lot, uh, is not supposed to sound as articulate and uh, as literate and as well-preserved mentally as you do. And many people who are allies in the war on drugs uh, probably hate your guts. <laughs> well, he wanted me to defend clarity. <laughs> um, well, no. What can I say? Uh, in other words, first of all, my life of drug exploration and drug taking is, as you say, broad and deep, <laughs> never reckless, always with a deep interest in analyzing each experience before moving on to the next one. Uh, none of the psychedelic drugs are drugs of addiction. Uh, that is a whole different category of drugs, which I am not particularly interested in defending. Uh, I do think it's one of the great tragedies of 20th century American society that we have uh, created a generation gap or several and criminalized much of our middle class by taking substances which other cultures had no problem coming to terms with. All right, let me uh, stop you and ask you right there about um, that. You, you mentioned drugs of addiction, which you don't uh, defend. Fine. 
Um, psychedelic drugs. Uh, Terrence, why are they illegal? They're illegal because uh, the people who take them tend to question established cultural values. That's absolutely why they're illegal. No matter whether you're a Hasid or a Communist Party official in North Korea or a government or church official in Brazil, if you take psychedelics, you will ask yourself, does my life and what I do make sense? Do you mean, do you mean that, uh, for example, um, a psychedelic experience could turn a communist against communism? I, absolutely, I think it could. I think it, in many cases it did. How could the idea of atheistic materialism maintain itself in the face of the counter-evidence of the psychedelic experience? What the psychedelic experience is saying, essentially, is that uh, everything is connected in a way that is not woo-woo or emotional, but actually palpable. And therefore, our actions have consequences. Now, most political agendas deny their consequences. So, for instance, Marxism had this theory of how human beings are that was so off-base that eventually it had to be pitched out. Uh, consumer capitalism has a theory of uh, human beings and what constitutes their happiness mm -hmm. that looks pretty hollow from the point of view of the psychedelic experience. Uh, uh, I think... You know, postmodern ideologies, Marxism, consumerism, so forth and so on, have based all their planning on an assumption of the absence of spirit. And in fact, this is not true. There is a spiritual dimension to humanness that cannot be denied. Now, it can certainly be distorted, and that's another side of things. But I think the search for psychedelic experiences represents a genuine religious impulse, uh, especially when pursued at the dose levels I recommend, <laughs> uh, this is not uh, exactly, this is not party recreational stuff. The, oh, no. the phrase recreational drugs is an effort to trivialize this, and I think for one reason, I don't think the government is ready for a full airing of the constitutional contradictions that are contained in suppressing people's genuine wish to use psychedelic substances for genuine purposes of religious uh, exploration. All right. Let me ask you this. It is a very good question. If everybody in the world were to um, have a psychedelic experience of the kind you described uh, in, in the last hour, this, this amazing psychedelic experience that might uh, kill you from amazement, uh, uh, or astonishment uh, when you take it. Um, what would the result be? What would the social changes be? What would the new government structure, if any at all, be? What would we all be collectively after that experience? I think what I, I, I can't see the end result except to say that I think uh, all, a lot of uh, flexibility would come into the system that a huge amount of our social structures and our political structures run simply on momentum. And I think that momentum is can be fatal. And it's that momentum that these huge 
reality-shattering psychedelic experiences deflect because they like push the restart button and suddenly the innocence of childhood is not a phrase or a or a memory it's a, a revivified experience so you're saying an adult somebody even my age uh you and I are about the same age by the way could do something like this and revisit the astonishment the newness the discovery of childhood absolutely uh, and more. I mean, that's a mild thing to claim, knowing uh, what is possible. But we have all seen on television, Terrence, the frying pan with uh, whatever it is frying in the pan uh, being compared to our brains. Uh, here are our brains on drugs. <laughs> well... Um, as I pointed out, DMT occurs naturally in the human brain. Uh, it's nice to see these things simplified down to slogans that can be shouted by one hysterical faction against another. <laughs> but I think more thoughtful people are beginning to realize these are complex issues. I mean, what we're really talking about when we talk about drugs is the future chemical engineering of the collective states of minds of millions of people. Uh, you mentioned everyone has seen this frying brain thing on yeah. TV. Yes. TV is the great unexamined and unstudied drug that has been foisted uh, on the consumer populations of the world. Uh, television has been studied. It has a physiological profile uh, no different from any other drug. Uh, your blood pools in your rear end, your eyes glaze over, your brain waves go flat, <laughs> and uh, you become the perfect pawn for uh, somebody else's trip. It doesn't even give you your own trip. It gives you somebody else's trip, usually somebody with commercial interest. But we don't hear a great hue and cry about this drug. Why? Well, because it serves the agenda of uh, those who are running this culture. Uh, let's talk about another drug for a moment. No, no, no. Just before we move on, uh, let's stay with DMT for a second. If everybody who, who took DMT received the message that consumerism, entrepreneurism, capitalism are good and wonderful things, and that is the spiritual message that you get from DMT, would it be legal? <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, I think it's becoming legal because I think where we're going to see it become legal is not as a drug. That's a little touchy in our value system. But as in the form of electronic entertainment a la virtual reality, if you could build a DMT virtual reality, they would come, Mark. <laughs> well, you were about to move on to some other... Well, I was going to mention a thing about coffee that points out the contradictions in the way the culture approaches drugs. Let me tell and you. And that is, medically, coffee has a very dubious profile. It's probably right behind tobacco in terms of uh, uh, liver cancer and this sort of thing. But every labor contract in the Western world uh, makes a place in it 
for the worker's right twice a day to stop and load up on this drug. This is the coffee break, and it's thought uh, indispensable to civilized life. Well, why don't we have a cannabis break? I don't know. But uh, that, we'll get to that, but coffee is indispensable. I drink copious amounts of it uh, to achieve each program that I do. So then yeah, I guess it, I, it I am... perfectly suited for the industrial process of the manufacturing of uh, objects television programs, production schedules, you name it. It's a marvelous drug for an industrial economy yeah. in the same way that yeah. I suppose coca in South America is a marvelous drug for a high-altitude herding, nomadic yeah. population. In other words, these drugs fit certain social situations. Uh, cannabis provokes a, a sort of disinterest in the work cycle, a more philosophical, laid-back, non-consuming approach. And so, of course, it's demonized with the hardest of hard drugs and just presented as the scourge of suffering mankind. Oh, it's it's the biggest lie we tell. I, I could not be more angry. Hey, there was news the other night that uh, they just have legalized the growth of hemp in Canada beginning next year. Uh, I heard that it was B.C. I didn't hear it was all of Canada. Oh, just B.C. Well, anyway... Uh, that will be a grand experiment, uh, indeed, so I'm glad to see it. Well, eventually, I think the drug thing will change because, for one reason, Europe is way out in front on this. European politics is not under the thumb of a right-wing fundamentalist agenda the way American politics is, and a lot of European social policy is actually made quite sensibly and not along ideological grounds. And uh, uh, the statistics, for instance, that Holland, with the loosest drug policy and yep. legalized prostitution, has both the lowest rate of heroin addiction and the lowest rate of AIDS infection in Europe. Um, you know, public health officials, whether they are think of themselves as conservatives or liberals, have to live within their budgets, and when they see that certain policies cause certain problems to disappear, that frees up money for other things. And so the Dutch experiment, it's not well reported in America, but I think at the policy-making level, it's being looked at very closely. So they have not as much AIDS, they have not as much uh, addiction. Um, what about I mean, you covered a very important point with respect to coffee. It's a it's a drug of productivity. Right. Uh, what about productivity? Has their productivity declined? Is there any record yet to go on? What do we know? I don't think. Well, I don't know. I can speak from being there, and I can say yes. But I think what you have to put up with is a, a whole society that is sort of like a college student's apartment. <laughs> Have you, have you been to Amsterdam? Um, you know, I have not. I, I've been uh, right next to it, but I, I certainly... My wife was trying to get me to fly to Amsterdam, and I should have. It was just a short little hop, but we're going back to Europe, and I will go visit Amsterdam. Well, you'll see that it, it, it's a country which is like a college town. So that's the cost of having these laid-back, easy-going attitudes uh, on these social issues. But well, yeah, but uh, before they would allow that to occur in America, they would machine-gun people to the ground. 
Well, this is the problem that we inherit. Uh, we have a political dialogue which is extremely shrill. We uh, tend to splinter and uh, factionalize, and then people get into uh, take-no-prisoner attitudes, and mm -hmm. they want to launch holy wars. And, uh, uh, you know, I once heard politics in America described as a civil war in a leper colony. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? And listen, uh, while we're on the subject of today's political scene, you know what all the headlines are, and everybody's talking about it. Um, the, the, what I call, you know, what I call the groping. Well, I think. Uh, you mean what do I think about all this? Yeah, of course. Well, I think it's a fascinating situation when the Republicans are contemplating impeaching a president with a 72% approval rating. Uh, I think what this may be all about is it seems like some kind of culture war is coming to a head, no pun intended. Uh, I would like us to come through this thing in a place where we could finally tell the French to go to hell when they start yakking about how we're ethically, we're obsessed with people's sex lives. Uh, it seems to me the history of the special prosecutor, and I don't know if you've gone through this or if you're personally aware, but it's very murky. These people have been after this guy, and obviously mm -hmm. Bill Clinton is some, you know, you don't become governor of Arkansas four times without being, in my book, some kind of a monster. Nevertheless, <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt said of Stalin, our monster. Our monster, yeah. Now, uh, most of conservative talk radio all across America, all I hear is, my God, how can the polls be saying this? It's impossible. What's happened to America? Why is the president so popular? That's what everybody's asking. Why is he so popular? Because it's an issue where people can finally vote against having all this moralizing, right-wing, uh, fundamentalist, holier-than-thou crap shoved down their throat. Yeah. And people love to support the president, uh, even if they think the, the very worst of him in the case of his behavior with these women. I think it's a real resentment against... I mean, do you believe... You know, I read a statistic that some radical S&M scene... Uh, went online on the internet and it took them three days to get the computers cranked open enough to accept all of the calls from Washington, D.C. <laughs> so uh, I just think it's a nest of vipers. Do you, uh, do you, do you have that URL? Uh... <laughs> it's, uh, it's no, 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 no. It's girls without razors. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. You know, I went to uh, Paris. I was in Paris. Uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to take the Concord at uh, twice the speed of sound to Paris. It was so cool. And I love Paris, and I love France, and I really detest the French um, people. And they're, they're just, they're all stuck up, and uh, but they do have a different attitude about a lot of things than uh, we do. And one of them, uh, this whole thing going on now with the President Terrence, it's one conclusion that you could come to is that the American people are beginning to change their attitudes finally uh, about sex. I mean, we have been a very, very uh, prudish uh, uh, people for all our existence. And one conclusion you can come to about this entire presidential dilemma 
and uh, is that uh, the American people are beginning to change their attitudes about sex. Is that possible? Yes, I don't think you can conclude anything else. They are changing their attitudes about sex, and they're accepting that the depth of penetration of modern media into people's lives is going to bring them this information, and they don't want it to mess with the political process, which is, a, as you say, a very French attitude. Let's let these people have their personal lives. I'm sure Hillary can uh, discipline Bill if that's necessary, and the rest of us should get on with the business of governing. <laughs> and, uh, and that is what um, the right wing across America cannot understand, and so... They are simply being puzzled. Uh, they're, they're trapped in this great puzzle of, my God, what's going on? Well, what's going on is we're growing up a little bit. I, isn't that, I mean, after all, the French uh, have been uh, around so very much longer as a nation. And is this a nation maturing? Well, I think not only is that what's going on, but the, the right wing needs to look closer to home what's going on is they're getting ready to commit suicide for the second or third time in four years by moving to impeach one of the most popular presidents in the 20th century uh, at the end of the most brilliant economic expansion the country has ever known. This is a prescription for catastrophe for the right, and they're charging ahead full bore with their usual... Uh, devil-may-care attitude. So, if, if, once again, they've invented a new way to commit suicide. Well, I, first of all, uh, don't think that the political right wing, um, when you break it down to individuals, sexually is any different at all than the political left wing, the, perhaps the only difference being that um, they keep their uh, whips and chains in closets. Yes, I think it's, uh, it's the, to try people for their sexual peculiarities and, uh, and faux pas is a sign of a totally juvenile country. And as you say, I think we're moving beyond that. Uh, now, if we were, if this president had fouled up the economy and the stock market were down a thousand points, then there might be some political rationale in all of this. But at the moment, it, it appears just madness to me, and I think will be very detrimental to any long-term right-wing agenda. Well, the right-wing, of course, if those conditions had prevailed, would have um, uh, burned, uh, you know, put Mr. Clinton uh, uh, on a stake and burned him alive, and the left-wing would have uh, quietly accepted that, uh, and we would have moved into a sort of an older more Victorian uh, period, but it doesn't appear as though that is going to happen. And as you point out, uh, the right wing is probably going to self-immolate if they proceed as they are right now. Uh, yes, I think, was it last weekend where Trent uh, Lott said he thought the special prosecutor should put his cards on the table and if it didn't fly to drop it, and then they jerked him around and 24 hours later he was calling for focus on the president's role in obstruction of justice and all this. So they can't get it straight. They, they, they have incredibly bad political instincts for a majority party in the world's you know, most dynamic democracy. Even though individually they're not sexually, in my opinion, any different than anybody else. Politically, they uh, 
they, they seem to not be able to leave the moralistic line, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that you know, immorality is necessarily a, uh, a virtue, um, and I don't mean and intend for people to believe that, but uh, simply a tolerance. They want to be left alone. They don't yes, want yes, somebody yes. else to set their moral agenda. You know, people like their Hustler magazine, and they like their beer, and they like to to do what they like to do. To my mind, that's a more authentic American uh, impulse to do what you want to do than this recursion to the Puritan impulse, which is to tell everybody else what to do. What's the fun in that? <laughs> All right. Uh, we are shortly going to go to the phones, and that should be quite an experience in itself. Um, I've got a fact here, which I guess I had to read you. Um, Art, I just wanted to thank you for having Terrence on your program. Um, and he has these questions. Impacts of currently legal drugs in our society, in other words, alcohol, tobacco, sugar, compared to the impact of currently illegal psychedelics in our society, like marijuana, LSD, and psilocybin. Um, multimedia film he worked on recently entitled Strange Attractors shown a few months ago here in Austin, Texas, with a message of psychedelic consciousness. What exactly were the blue apples referenced in the film and your message behind it? What well, first of all, let me say uh, that was a film that I was an actor in. I was not a, the director or the writer, so I wasn't in control of the message. Uh, the blue apples were simply symbolic of all psychedelic plants. They didn't want to name a specific psychedelic plant, so oh, the blue apples became a symbolic carrier of all of them. Uh, as long as the subject has come up, I would recommend to people to see that film. It certainly is state-of-the-art for uh, computer graphic uh, special effects on small budgets. Uh, it was done by uh, Rose X Productions down in Austin, a really talented friends of mine. All right. Um, here's another one. As a teacher, website publisher, and author, I am convinced now that genetics will have more to do with the next 200 years than any other science in that regard. When we learn how to recreate ourselves, then might we be able to produce humans with minds that are capable of understanding the connection between mind and energy and mind and matter. Could we not then recreate our entire selves and the universe? Well, these are the kinds of scenarios that are, are coming upon us, yes. I mean, uh, for example, uh, ways to splice into the Internet so that it feels like it's a part of your own mind. So, in other words, the seamless interface where when you need intelligence, you can pull on all the intelligence there is on the planet. Uh, I recently discovered a science fiction writer I was not familiar with, this guy Greg Egan, who wrote a thing called Permutation City. And that's a technology 50 years in the future where people routinely copy themselves as code and reappear as copies in artificial environments and these copies know they are copies and the the technology and the psychology of that world are handled by this guy with incredible skill so there are people out there imagining 
the kinds of futures that the, the questioner talks about, the very biggest issues are going to be dealt with. In other words, what is intelligence? What is identity? Mm-hmm. What is being itself? Uh, can death be transcended through mm-hmm. somehow becoming part of this global uh, symbiotic hyper-organism that our technology is creating, we stand really in a place no no one has ever stood before. And what will come of it, you know, genetics is one frontier. Uh, another frontier is nanotechnology. Uh, another frontier is human-machine interfacing. Another frontier is human life extension. Um when you pile up all this stuff and realize that major discoveries are being made in all these fields simultaneously, you begin to see that the morphogenetic momentum for this thing that wants to be born out of the human species is at this point almost uh, unstoppable and inevitable, I think. We're all just witnesses to this unfolding. This is the culmination of 25,000 years of human striving and technology testing and language acquisition and uh, and now we're about to make the big leap into mm. the great question mark. Mm. You mentioned copies, um, uh, Terence, uh, copies, that we'll be able to have copies of ourselves. Now that's very interesting. A copy would be a precise copy of us and you said it would know that it is a copy. But um, I see a problem here because that copy would contain uh, the same ego that the original has, and the only way to satisfy that I, that I can see for the copy would be to liquidate the original, and then it, then it would feel good. Well, these kinds of feelings and situations are what drives Greg Egan's fiction. His copies behave like human beings with drives and neuroses and uh, uh, but his main strength doesn't lie so much in portraying the psychology of these people as in imagining and describing in a way that convinces you it could be uh, the technologies that will make this stuff happen and of course he's concentrating on uh, artificial worlds of the silicon variety, but then when you put in nanotechnology and some of this other stuff, uh, it really is dazzling. I don't, I don't think anyone can triangulate all these factors without having the feeling that we're approaching some kind of singularity. You and I talked about this. I mean, the quickening that you've written about and and the novelty theory that I've written about are both metaphors for this sense of impending cross-fertilization and implosion of all knowledge. Um, Before we leave uh, the present day silicon area, I want to ask you about this pending incredible doomsday Y2K scenario in which, um, you know, 2000 is going to come and the main frames are going to crash. My God, there goes Social Security. There goes um, all the government's computers. And we are now so tied in and dependent upon all this that many people are saying, it's real, don't laugh, everything is going to crash, nobody's preparing, that day is going to come, it's going to be, it's going to be um, a computer Armageddon. Uh, well, I've heard all this, and I've visited the websites, and while I'm reading the the 
propaganda of these people, yes. it seems alarming. On the other hand, uh, I have an intuition that it represents some kind of culling. I mean, the word has been out now for about two years, and more and more institutions are scrambling to become uh, 2,000 compatible. But they're not making it, Terrence. And, and one has to ask uh, the, uh, the obvious rebellious question is, it, could it possibly be a good thing? Well, and how extensive will it be? That's the question that no, that where the experts seem to differ. Uh, I've seen pieces which say it's a hiccup on the way to the end of history, and other people say it is the end of history. Um, well, it would certainly bring an awful lot of uh, paradigms and um, institutions tumbling down all at once if the doomsayers are correct, and I would think that you might consider that at an upside somehow. Well, it depends on how far back it takes us. In other words, if, <laughs> if, if it takes us back, uh, you know, the ones who are heading for the hills with dried meat, if they're right, that's a little uh, disturbing. If, on the other hand... If, on the other hard, hand, I, I'm advertising absolutely fresh abacuses or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think that as we get closer to it, the spending curve on the problem by corporations should tell us how real it is. Well, that's It's true. their goose that's going to be cooked. So let's watch uh, company outlays for Y2K consultants, and if it soars toward infinity, the rest of us better start packing our lunches. But what I am told is that it's too late that even if they took all the computer programmers capable of going to work on this problem and started them right now, they wouldn't even get close to solving the problem by the time the magic day hits and everything goes kaboom. Well, maybe, maybe that's not true. I'm, I'm sure these consultants are not saying that because the obvious conclusion that would be, well, then we won't pay your fee to well, that's right. an attempt to fix it. No, this is these are independent people, not to, not the people who are seeking to go out and get the, all the money saying for it's fixing it. Too group. late. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, then the question that needs to be answered is, too late for what? Let's have a convincing picture of the scenario so that we can each look at it and judge it. I mean, we're unfamiliar with this kind of a scenario. So just saying airliners will fall out of the sky and nuclear power plants will blow up, yeah. we need to know the sequence, the imagined sequence of events. And, uh, and if it's true, it will certainly be a bizarre comment on the movement into the first moments of the third millennium that we basically blow ourselves away because of a computer glitch. <laughs> well, I wonder if we are truly that dependent, and I sort of imagine that we are. Every single function of government is computer-controlled. Most of them have this problem. I mean, I could go on and mention every alphabet agency. My God, NSA, CIA, they'll fall apart, along with Social Security, along with the Veterans Administration, and... Checks well, go and I guess the question is, what happens to the money? Uh, is some kind of enormous heist of the whole human race, is that why there's so little interest in fixing the problem? Because, in fact, the problem is somehow going to make a lot of people incredibly wealthy and no one will be able to trace the exact outlines of the heist. 
I have even my own webmaster, who's brilliant, Keith uh, Rowland, has a has several commercial uh, programs that he has written. I mean, he's really good, and even he has the Y2K problem, and he's not so sure he can get it fixed for his clients in time. So this really is a serious problem. I get a lot of email about it, and I've been considering it, thinking about it, and if all came tumbling down, I am not convinced that it would be a bad thing. Maybe maybe I need to get an advertisement. How you can profit from the Y2K crash? Well, I think probably we should be also talking about organizing tested sub-networks where the thing, the date has already been simulated. Uh, Apple claims all its machinery is Y2K compatible, and so... Yeah, but they're, 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 they're desperate, though. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Do you, do, you, do you have an Apple? I'm devoted. With a name like McKenna, could I not have a Mac? Uh, uh, it's like, um, it's a good machine, uh, Terrence, but you know, it's like it's like a beta recorder. Well, but my son and his hotshot friends tell me anybody who doesn't learn Unix is a wuss anyway and a lost uh-huh. soul. So uh-huh. that puts us probably both in hot water. Yeah, probably so. Every time I say something like this, I get, oh, you wouldn't. I mean, people are so attached to their computers. The Mac users, they flood me with vicious, ugly uh Cheat-filled mail. Um, when we come back, we're going to go to the phone. Stay right there. You've got a good long break, Terrence. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. The reason that I left that last uh, bit in, the one about uh, the Y2K issue, well, even though we now know that it was a non-starter, The reason I left it in is to show you how people use fear to sell their points of view. Whether it is to encourage spending more money on defense or about hordes of refugees storming our borders, well, fear is always used to get people to do things that they don't really think makes much sense. You see, as much as I enjoy listening to Art Bell, we just now heard him continue to spread fear about the Y2K issue even after Terence tried to assure him that it wasn't as dire as Bell made it sound. And, uh, well, my guess is that uh, Art Bell wasn't all that worried about it himself, but he knew that by keeping his audience fearful about it, then the next time that his program was to feature a Y2K discussion, well, he'd be assured of a big audience. And if you give it a little thought, fear is an exceptionally powerful tool, so, uh, well, maybe you should always question people who constantly deal in it. Now, before I go, I'd want to repeat something that my mother often said that I think fits right here in the discussion that Terrence and Art Bell had about the special investigator that was looking into the president's behavior. Well, back then it was a Democratic president being investigated, and today it's a Republican president being investigated. As my dear sainted mother sometimes said, everything has changed, but nothing is different. (laughs) I also found it interesting that uh, 20 years ago, Terrence McKenna and Art Bell, on what was then considered to be a radio program that was out there on the far edge, well, they were talking about artificial intelligence and the Internet in much the same way that we are now talking about AI today. But back then, they were considered flaky for making such speculations. 
So, uh, my question is whether that is something that has changed or is it something that is actually different? <laughs> and you're going to have to be the judge of that yourself. Well, that's going to be it for today, but next week I'll play the second half of this fascinating conversation. And until then, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>